welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every week, decisions are made across Maine that affect the future of our environments. Lawmakers in Augusta propose or debate new bills. Mainers speak up on proposals made by corporations or state agencies. Clean energy projects are launched, or communities take action to address threats to clean air or water or open spaces that they cherish. Since 1959, NRCM has been on the front lines, tracking these developments and tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law. NRCM does this to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. So every two weeks, we'll sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories you need to know about and what lies ahead. Thank you for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Well, we're in the waning days of summer, and for many of us, that means the beginning of the school year. I'm Colin Durant, NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director, and I'm excited to be here today with our Sustainability Coordinator, Chrissy Adamowitz, to talk about a topic that's very close to her heart, food waste. Thanks for having me today. Of course. And one of the places that Chrissy's been working a lot in in recent years are schools. She's been coordinating with students and teachers to reduce food and other waste whenever possible. And while the pandemic has made that a bit more challenging, if there's anything I've learned about our Sustainable Maine team, it's that they don't shy away from a challenge. So she's also helped uh, schools find creative ways to get around the pandemic, some of the challenges of the pandemic too. So we're gonna dig into that soon. Uh, but before we do, uh, I just wanna talk about some other environmental stories that have been in, around the, you know, in the news in the last couple of weeks. Um, August 24th was the fifth anniversary of the Katahdin Woods and Waters Monument. What a wonderful success story that's been. It really emphasizes the value of public lands, both for Maine and the nation. In advance of that anniversary, the National Park Service, just with the help of some donors, just added several new campsites, yeah, campsites to the monument to meet demand. And I'm sure they're going to be worth checking out um, for those of you that are longtime visitors to KWW or, or who want to get up there. Um, on, the, on the Kennebec, an issue we've talked about before, the owner of the four dams in the lower Kennebec, uh, Brookfield Renewables, continues to distract public attention from the damage that their dams are causing to endangered Atlantic salmon and the health of the river. Uh, we've just joined with our partners to file comments with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to highlight how Brookfield has proposed totally unrealistic fish passage proposals that it knows it won't work. Uh, that's because the best available science shows they won't work. And it's because they don't work anywhere else in the world. Uh, we've got more on that on our blog. And much of this misinformation uh, being spread by Brookfield centers on one of the dams in the sappy mill. You've probably read about it. But the reality is, um, you know, we know from experience here in Maine that when, when dams are removed and when dams have been removed in the past, infrastructure issues were resolved and businesses like Sappy were protected. And of course, we're gonna, we'd, we'd expect that the same would be, uh, the same would happen here in the case of the removal of four dams on the lower Kennebec. Um, also in August, the US Senate and the House of Reps uh, passed a Build Back Better budget resolution, say that 10 times fast. That's a framework um, that in, for investment that includes some of the most important federal climate policies ever. Um, several pieces of this plan, like a clean energy payment program, rebates for weatherizing homes, 
a federal clean energy accelerator, um, would directly support components of Maine's climate action plan. So that's why NRCM and our partners and Mainers are calling on Maine's congressional delegation to take a really active leadership role in passing this once in a lifetime climate action legislation. Uh, so that's the news. That's all the news right there, or a big hit of the news. Um, and now let's shift gears to schools and food waste. Welcome again, Chrissy. Um, and I'm excited because I know this is a topic that a lot of students and teachers really care about. So I wanted to start with just a quick big picture summary of the problem you're trying to solve and then um, what you're encouraging schools to do. Yeah, uh, the big picture is that we in the United States um, waste a lot of the food that we grow. Uh, about 40% of the food that's grown in the United States is never eaten. And uh, that waste happens all throughout the supply chain. And um, that's a big problem for climate change. It's a big problem for hunger. So that's happening at the national scale. And that's also happening here in the state of Maine as well. Um, we estimate that Maine schools are wasting about 7 million pounds of food waste every year. And meanwhile, one in five Maine kids are um, living with hunger. So, um, you know, we, what this says to us is that we have a, an interesting relationship with food that's not really that healthy and we need to need to fix it. So that's why we wanted to get involved with schools because um, they really represent the opportunity to influence the next generation and the habits of the next generation to um, use, you know, to consume food in a way that's healthier for them and for the climate. Um, right on. I love that. That's perfect. So um, say you're a student or a teacher and you want to get started. I know you NRCM has created a handbook that's available on our website that folks can check out. But I'd love for you to just give a breakdown of how you encourage the schools you're working with to get started. What, what's your advice to them on on how they can get started? Yeah, um, well, you know, I would encourage folks to uh, download the handbook or if you want a hard paper copy, we could mail you one because that handbook is um, pretty thorough and uh, covers the school context very thoroughly and it will give you a lot of background. And I think that's important um, for people to have going in if they are not working in schools already. So if you are a community member or an activist or maybe you're a student and you only have sort of your own uh, sort of experience in the school and you don't really know what goes on behind the scenes, this handbook will really uh, give you some answers to your questions before you approach busy school staff about this, about uh, a school food uh, recovery program. So I strongly encourage you to check out the handbook. Um, the next thing is, you know, feel free to get in touch with me because I love working one-on-one -on -one with community activists and schools to help them navigate the really complex um, the food scene of schools, you know, there's a lot of regulation, there are a lot of, you know, teachers are busy, we know that school nutrition directors are busy. So um, I really encourage people to get in touch with me because I would be happy to work with you one on one. Um, you know, while you're doing that simultaneously, you know, try to identify people in the school and that can really be anybody. Uh, people who are passionate about the environment, who are passionate about food, gardens, things like that, because you want somebody who's working within the school to be your leader. So they can be principals, they can be custodial staff, they could be students, they could be teachers, they could be uh, really anybody. So try to identify that person, check out the handbook, get in touch with me, and 
um, I'm really here to help you every step of the way. Nice. And Chrissy, Chrissy is such a rock star at this stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit. She's going to talk a little bit in, um, in a couple of minutes about some of the highlights of the schools that she's already worked with. But one thing I touched on earlier was the pandemic has obviously changed a lot of things, especially at schools. Um, but also, um, you know, when it comes to sustainability, and obviously we're happy to see students back in school in mass. Today was my seven-year-old's first day at, at second grade, which is super exciting. Um, I'll have to get her, I'll have to get some intel from her on what's going on at school with food waste. But um, given the challenges of the pandemic that you know some of the schools are facing, um, what are some of your recommendations for schools that want to address food waste while also sort of navigating some of the concerns and or potential constraints um, around the pandemic. And of course, um, we're seeing a surge right now. And so it's still very, you know, on the top of people's minds and we wanna make sure we're doing everything we can to be healthy and safe. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I've been talking with people in the school community um, over the past few weeks and they're unfortunately is still uncertainty about what the school year is going to look like. I think a lot of people were hoping that school would be back to normal, but there um, is still some uncertainty. Although schools are working hard to get um, as back to normal as possible. So when you go to when you go in, keep that in mind um, because it's a really difficult environment for schools to work in and it has resulted in a lot of waste. Um, we last year we created a couple of fact sheets that I think are still pretty applicable today um, for how parents can uh, help the school reduce waste. So the first is a uh, sort of a, a tip sheet on how to pack a reusable or zero waste lunchbox, and um, that can really help uh, reduce the school's waste and, and also raise your child's awareness and support uh, school efforts to raise awareness about waste. Uh, one of my favorite tips on it is sort of teach your child to pack it in and pack it out. And that is a backpacking philosophy about it's kind of like a leave no trace philosophy. Send your, your kid to school with that philosophy because it does a couple of things. First and foremost, it shows your child that waste doesn't go away. And that's true. You know, we our waste is ending up in our environment, it's ending up in our landfills. It's ending up in the, the stomachs of wildlife. So it doesn't go away. And when you train your child to be mindful of their waste and you know pack it with them to take home with them, it also preps them for um, more expensive reusables. So if you want to give your child some reusable silicone baggies or a reusable water bottle, it trains them to keep track of it and bring it home at the end of the day. Um, and so that's really helpful for reducing the packaging waste that goes, that's really part and parcel to food. We haven't talked about that yet, but um, really the way we approach waste in schools is, you know, the food, but also the, the packaging that goes with that food and how to re reduce those things simultaneously so that composting programs don't get contaminated, recycling programs don't get contaminated. Um, maybe that's another conversation for another day, but a zero waste lunchbox can go a long way in helping the school. Um, and then there's also another tip sheet really for school administrators. And I think that's still pretty applicable um, about increasing the length of the lunch period so that kids can social distance and consume more of their food. And that's always been a, a recommendation that we've had. Um, it's giving kids more time to eat because again, we've got hungry kids um, and uh, we, we know that if they have more time to eat that they can consume more of the food rather than having to throw it out. 
Um, there's things like that. Um, there's other things on the tip sheet that are a little um, outside of food waste, like walking and biking to school. But um, you know, check out those 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 sheets. They're on our website, and we can also mail them to you if you need them. You know me; I'm a big fan of walking and biking. Um, That's why I threw it in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, and I just want to, I just want to say those fact sheets were terrific. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate again about, um, the work that you and Sarah, who's the director of the sustainable main team are doing. I think you're so, you're so focused on the policy solutions, that systematic change, but also are really, you know, providing people with tangible tips about how they can be a part of the solution too. And, you know, act locally, um, if they're interested. So we sort of talked at like a really high level. How do you engage? How do you, you know, and I think people might be asking, okay, well, what does this really mean? Like in the school, what does this really mean? So I know that you've already, you know, over the past few years, you've worked with a bunch of schools throughout the state, really, um, a really broad geographic range on food waste and recovery programs. So I'd love for you to just highlight like two or three of your favorite case studies and examples of, of schools uh, that have tried to tackle, you know, the challenge of waste or food waste. Yeah, we have worked all over the state. Um, and I love uh, being able to work with all different kinds of schools. You know, we've got very rural schools whose uh, programs, you know, are uh, working more in tandem with local farmers. And we've got more urban schools that just hire a uh, compost pickup service. So there's really a diversity of schools out there. Um, Gosh, picking a favorite. So I'll just I'll just start with, with sort of the general thing. So our, our general uh, goal is to get schools um, reducing the food waste that they have in the first place. So pre-pandemic, that was um, helping kids uh, get uh, eat more food by giving them more time to eat food. Um, having share tables, which is it, you know a place to put unwanted food that's still clean and whole or still in its package so that other students could eat it. Um, and then as a last resort, you know, composting that food or sending it to a digester so that it doesn't go to the landfill. Because what I didn't say earlier was that um, when food goes into the landfill, it's, a, it's a, a big methane emitter. So organic material in the landfill is, emits methane, creates methane, and that is 28 to 36 times more potent uh, of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So it's a major problem. Um, and so that's why we wanna divert that from the school trash cans and sort of teach kids that, that it doesn't belong in the trash. Um, so those are sort of the, the things that we do is getting composting in, in, the, um, in the cafeteria or in classrooms and sharing food if we can. So that was really pre-pandemic. The, the pandemic really shifted a lot of that for schools. And really, it turned the whole situation upside down. So the first two examples I'll give to you were some creative solutions that happened during the pandemic. The uh, first one was at Yarmouth Middle School. And I was working with a student who was really passionate about plastic pollution. And um, her school used to use reusable silverware. So this is really more about the the plastic waste that would contaminate a compost bin. So again, they're part and parcel there, but they used to use reusable silverware and they switched to plastic disposable because of the pandemic, because students were eating inside the classroom and she got creative. Um, the, the administrative staff were feeling stretched, but she what she did is she, 
she did a little study and surveyed her classroom to see how much of that those plastic cutlery, plastic silverware was actually being used. And she showed with data her school administration that the students aren't using it. Only half the students are using it and got them to put a checkbox on their lunch form that says, or that gives students the opportunity to opt out of getting that plastic silverware to save the silverware. So it's, you know, it might seem like a small win, but it really adds up. And that is just an example of the creativity we saw this year. Another quick one is, you know, Talbot Elementary School did lunchroom in the classroom as well, and we piloted compost bins in the classroom. And uh, we are going to continue that pilot this coming school year. It was a success. Teachers said it was really easy to do. Um, and students actually commented, like, they're surprised for how much packaging was with their food because they had to separate their food out. They started to notice how much packaging was coming with their food. And so they were surprised by that. And so that was a really great learning opportunity. So I, I love creative ideas. I love getting creative. And the pandemic has really been a challenge that has required some creativity. So, you know, I encourage you again to get in touch with me because there are opportunities to, to make progress, even though we are still working in this challenging pandemic environment. Nice. I love those examples. And I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me about food waste, which actually was like my first job out of college, by the way, I did at AmeriCorps job, but the, like, I love that first example, you know, often when you, when you like dig into the data or do a survey, you just like, you just prove your case with the data. I mean, the, the value is there from an environmental responsibility, but often you see savings or you find out that it's like you said, that's just fascinating to me. Like not many people were, were using them and that's such a great solution, but often, you know, with administrators and others, you need some data to back it up. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, um, one other example too, that was, comes from the pre-pandemic times was with, with Westbrook High School and Sakuraba Elementary School, which are both in the same district. And it adds up. And when you can put those numbers down on paper, it really um, impresses administration. So with those schools, we gave them a grant to switched to silverware and between those schools, they were saving 4,600 trays, plastic trays and cutlery every single week of the school year. Wow. So the impact is huge and, and it's good for school meals. People love it in the school community. So it's, there's a lot of really positive things that come out of these programs. That's awesome. Um, well, this has been really great. Thanks so much, um, Chrissy. I think I just wanted to end real quick by do you have like some like top three tips or what, you know, some tips for, I like threes, maybe that's because I'm a communicator, but um, top three tips for schools or really anyone who's looking to reduce food waste. Do you, what would you tell people? Yeah, uh, it, uh, I think, um, you know, just to, to be flexible and to stick with it because habits are um, hard to change, especially when you're trying to apply them to a fast place institution like a school, uh, you know, school lunch hours can be, they're not hours, they're, they can be 20 minutes from start to finish. And that includes the time it takes to stand in line and for kids to socialize. So there's going to be mistakes. There are going to be times when staff feel overwhelmed, but to just stick with it and be helpful and be flexible. Um, and then also don't forget, like, this is all about reducing waste. So don't forget that 
to, to think about how to reduce the food waste, how to reduce the plastic waste first and foremost, because not only is that better for the environment, but that's gonna make the actual sort, the separation of waste with compost bins and recycling bins a lot easier at the end of the day. So really focused on reduce first. Um, and, you know, again, don't be shy, get in touch with me and I'd be happy to help you. Love it. And I think as with everything, um, and you guys have emphasized this with the EPR for packaging law, I try to remind myself, like give myself a break sometimes and remember that the deck is stacked against us because, you know, these corporations and others, you, you, it's hard, it's, it's hard to find stuff that's not packaged in plastic. It's hard to do that work. And, it, and while it's important as individuals to, to make these, to make these, to take these steps, um, we've also got to be holding, you know, those corporations accountable, which I know you guys are doing too. And I appreciate. So, um, well, thanks so much, Chrissy, for having this discussion with us and for joining us. I hope people reach out to her. And as we've mentioned several times, there's just so many great resources and, and this toolkit on our website for those of you that want to learn more. Um, uh, so uh, as we do every episode, I just want to give folks a heads up on what might be coming, uh, what's coming up in the next few weeks that we'll be paying attention to. Of course, we'll be watching the discussion in Congress over that Build Back Better budget, uh, as well as continuing to push for the removal of the Kennebec River dams and highlighting Brookfield's violations of the Endangered Species Act. Um, we're going to be also closely monitoring the state DEP's response to that Superior Court judge's ruling that invalidated CMP's illegal lease to cross public lands for their controversial corridor project. Uh, we believe that the state is, should compel CMP to stop construction immediately until they have full right title and interest to the entire route of the project. Uh, and finally, I'll note that September marks the uh, fifth, I'm gonna get a little wonky with you here, the fifth anniversary of the Land Use Planning Commission, which um, I'm sure people who follow our forest and wildlife program are very familiar with, but that's an important agency that regulates development in the North Woods and unorganized territory. So I think Melanie, who's our forest and wildlife director, will have um, something on our website and the blog about the significance of the Land Use Planning Commission and, and that anniversary. So uh, Chrissy, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Colin. Oh, and Chrissy noted that I said fifth anniversary of the land use planning. I might've said fifth anniversary of the land use planning commission. It's the 50th anniversary, which is, which is, which is very different and a good note to make. Um, uh, so thanks Chrissy. And um, thanks again to all our listeners for joining us and good luck to all those students returning to school and to all of us trying to squeeze that little bit of summer uh, out before fall and winter. All right. Talk to you soon, Chrissy. Bye. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast listening apps. To learn more about NRCM, please visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment. Until next time... Thanks for your interest, attention, and involvement in the collective efforts by Maine people to protect the unique woods, waters, and wildlife of our state. Thanks again.